0: Our scripture passage tonight is 2 Kings 3, 1-27, and I'll give you a chance to find it in your Bibles, there's Bibles in the pews, or on your phone. Again, that's 2 Kings 3, 1-27, if you would please rise as we read God's word together. In the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the the hand of Moab. And Elisha said... As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals." This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kira Hereseth, And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
1: So we are uh, continuing in our sermon series on Elijah and Elisha, and we now come to the first story about Elisha, where he's alone. And um, in this story, um, we kind of, for the first time, pull out to um, you know, the geopolitical scale. So it's, uh, it's now involving uh, other armies and uh, other nations. And um, it contains this major twist at the end of the story. I don't know if you caught it or not. You kind of have to be paying attention, but it's like the movie Knives Out. Um, I first thought of Sixth Sense or, um, you know, one of those classic twists at the end of the movies. Um, the Usual Suspects is another great one, but Knives Out was the one that's the more current one, and if you watch the last scene in that, it changes everything. Um, I'm not gonna tell you what happens, but it changes everything, <laughs> and you almost want to re-watch it, you know? You, you don't know what's going on, and then you, like, now, now I want to re-watch what really happened there. And, that's kind of the way that you should think about this passage. When you find out what happens in the end, you really need to reread it again and say, okay, all the things I was thinking about this were wrong. You have to kind of re-examine your presuppositions about God and yourself uh, because you think that the Lord is on Israel's side the whole time. And it almost seems like Elisha is saying, oh yeah, go and you're going to, God's going to give Moab into your hands and you're going to Destroy all their trees and all their fields and all their springs of water, and it's great, you know, go for it. But turns out, uh, the very last verse, you realize, no, wrath comes upon Israel. Uh, God is punishing Israel for doing those very things, and it's like that scene uh, I love at the beginning of the book of Joshua, where Joshua is about to invade the Promised Land, and all of a sudden there is the the angel of the Lord uh, of all the hosts of heaven. And Joshua sees him, and he's terrified, and he falls at his feet, and he says uh, to the angel of the Lord, are you for us, or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord says, no, um, but I am the king of all of the angel armies, and, uh, and you are either for or against me. I'm on the side of righteousness. Righteousness. So that's kind of what's going on here. It's like that Bob Dylan song with the Lord on our side, you know, with God on our side, where he's saying every country thinks that God is on their side automatically. And we invoke his name to justify our wars or our conflicts. Uh, We chase our idols and then say God is on our side. That's the first point. Um, The second point is that amazingly, in the middle of it all, while they're plotting destruction, God is gracious to them and still brings forth life. Yahweh brings forth the life that Baal cannot bring. In fact, Baal is the one driving them to war. Um, He's the one that drives them into violence. And it is Yahweh who brings the water of life, right in the middle of their idolatry. So first of all, the chasing of idols. Verse 3 is very clear. Jehoram clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Jehoram was the son of Ahab. Uh, Ahab was like the great, 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 great grandson of uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam, uh, splintered Israel, and he uh, created this kind of fake northern kingdom where they didn't have a temple, uh, they didn't really have a priesthood. And so that's, the sin of Jeroboam was idolatry, to worship Baal, the god of fertility, the god of uh, the Canaanites. Uh, they called him Baal-zebol, which means the lord of life, the lord who brings life. But uh, the prophets called him Baal-zebub, which is the lord of crap, the lord of dung. Uh, the Lord is worthless. He brings death. And Israel was a, a, a nation called to bless the world. That's, they were a light to the world. They were supposed to um, flourish and then have all the other nations flourish around them. And in fact, in this story, it's the exact opposite. That it says in verse 4 the king of Moab, Mesha, had to deliver 100,000 rams and 100,000 lambs every year to Jehoram. Uh, God told them in the law, you weren't supposed to do this kind of thing with Moab. This is not right. So instead of blessing Moab, uh, Israel is a curse to her and is sucking all of her resources away. And um, because Mesha, the king of Moab, will not continue to do that, right? rightly so, it's just destroying his country, it's draining them of all their resources. Because he doesn't do that and rebels, Jehoram's like, we're God's chosen people, you know, don't mess with us, we're going to attack. And so not only does he attack them, he goes to attack the Moabites, but he brings in uh, the southern kingdom as well, who's the, the more righteous kingdom. Uh, they're the ones who still have the temple. They're surrounded, uh, they surround Jerusalem. So not only does uh, Jehoram make this uh, idolatrous attack on Moab, but he brings in Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, into his plans. Verse 7, Moab has rebelled against me, Let us get, let's go and make them pay. Like, let's go down there and kick some butt. And when uh, Jeroboam, when um, Jehoshaphat gets in the car, you know, with Jehoram, he's like, oh, by the way, we're going to swing by uh, Edom. We're going to swing by the, the nation of Edom and pick up uh, their king as well. That's to be a, a red flag, for sure, that there's going to be this pagan king that's joining them in this battle uh, against Moab. So... First red flag to Jehoshaphat um, is that the king of Edom is with them now. Second red flag is that in going to get the king of Edom to pick him up to join them in the battle, they get lost. So verse nine says they make a circuitous route for seven days. Kind of like they, they don't know exactly where they are. It's taking much longer than they thought. And that's the third red flag is that they do not plan well for this journey. They're totally unprepared. Verse nine is like, oops, there's not enough water. For our army and our animals. And um, you'll notice in the story there's an attention that God pays to the animals and to nature in general. That's good. I keeps saying it's good. And so God's upset that the animals are not going to be watered. And then when, when that happens, you know, when that happens, Jehoram turns to the king of Edom and Jehoshaphat and he like, gives that emoji like, you know, I, who knew? And um, it says in verse 10, I guess Yahweh is just giving us into the hand of Moab like totally fatalistic, like he had nothing to do with it at all. And finally, Jehoshaphat says, and I love this line, you know, um, can we find like a prophet around here somewhere that could maybe tell us like what we should have done to begin with? You know, now that we've decided to invade Moab and we're halfway there, maybe we should have asked for God's guidance to begin with. And um, Jehoram's so clueless that he doesn't even seem to know anything about this. So it takes one of the servants to come uh, and say to Jehoshaphat, oh yeah, there is, verse 11, there is this guy named Elisha. And he's really good with water. He's done stuff with water before. So let's go to him and see what can happen. And when they come to Elisha, he knows they have absolutely no interest whatsoever in actually following Yahweh. Um, They have no interest in Yahweh to begin with, not worshiping him, not doing what he said, and so uh, Elisha says to them, what do I have to do with you? What me to you is in literally what it says in Hebrew. What me to you? He said, go back to your mother and your father's prophets and ask them. Ask Baal if you really wanna know what's gonna happen here. Ask Baal to give you water since he's the, you know, the God of life. Um, so he, he rebukes them very strongly, but then um, he helps them anyway. And uh, verse 15 is like out of the blue. Uh, I don't know why, um, but suddenly he like yells out, "Somebody bring me musician!" You know, like there's musicians all over the desert. Uh, it's like totally out of left field. Um, but apparently, and this is very interesting to me that they they found one. So apparently, there are musicians uh, out there in the desert. And you know, I would say even that it might have been common to travel around as an army with like a musician on hand. And one thing that shows me if you are a musician is that they are a very essential to the worship, not only of Israel, but maybe other nations as well. Because it's like, he can't prophesy properly until he is moved by music. Like he's like, I need a musician here to help me get going and then then the spirit will move upon me. And you know know this if you've been to a concert um, that you just felt like overwhelmed you and uh, allowed you to kind of move into a different space almost like you're out of body but you can really lose yourself in music. You can get possessed by it. And that's what happens here. And it's like he becomes, Elisha becomes like John Coltrane's saxophone. You know, he is now being played by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, God is playing him and the music is causing the prophecy to come out of him. And I think that's probably a clue as to how a lot of prophecy actually happened. Like there'd be a person with a guitar or some instrument and they would play the instrument and then the prophet like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah would start to actually prophesy. But uh, he becomes animated by this higher spirit, Elisha, and he says uh, a couple of things. One, verse 18, I will give, this is Yahweh now speaking, in the voice of Yahweh, and I wonder if his voice even changes, I will give the Moabites into your hand. And Jehoram's thinking, this is great, God's on our side. And then he says in verse 19, you will fell every good tree, notice the good is emphasized twice here, you will stop up all of Moab's springs of water, which is where life is found, and you will ruin every good piece of land with stones. And Jehoram's like pumps, you know, this is, I knew he was on our side, this is exactly what I wanted to do, and now God is rubber stamping our plans. But this is not encouragement. And that's really the most important thing about this passage. This prophecy is not an encouragement to do these things at all. It's like when Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to betray me, you're going to give me into the hands of the the rulers, they're going to torture me and kill me. That's what this is like. This is not a recommendation, it's a judgment of doom. That God is giving them over to their sins. And the Torah, like the law of Moses clearly forbids a scorched earth policy, which is what they're doing here. You can go back to Deuteronomy and read, and it says uh, you cannot do things like this. You cannot burn fields or stop up springs uh, or cut down trees. When the Nazis uh, invaded Russia, that's what they did. They would burn all the villages. uh, They would kill the animals. uh, They would uh, cut down fields to starve the Russians. And uh, this kind of thing infuriates Yahweh. Uh, He has no patience whatsoever, not only with the destruction of human life, but with animal life and plant life. And it says in verse 20 simply that wrath came upon Israel. And that's the wrath of God. And that's the twist, that they end up being repulsed by the Moabites. And they lose the battle, and they leave. And it just really, I think the author is doing this thing to catch you. Like the author is trying to catch you and where you think that God's on your side, because we always do. I have had almost no conflicts that I have mediated where the person said, you know, I think I might be actually on the wrong side of this, that maybe they're more righteous than I am. That's very rare. It happens, but it's extremely rare. Usually when there's a conflict, we make up a narrative where we are right and they're wrong, or, you know, at least 70% right, and they're, uh, they're much less right than we are. They've got maybe 30%. But whether it's your friend, have you ever had a conflict with a friend, and, uh, or maybe uh, someone that you used to date or be married to, or a boss or a spouse, and you're in a conflict? It could be a sibling or parent. It could be a nation. It could be a whole nation. Like, we think there are good guys and bad guys, and there are white hats, and there are black hats, and we know who's who. So, you know, blue versus red is obviously a big one. Um, where we just think absolutely we know whose side God is on. Often the case is that both sides are wrong. That's that's the case here, that Moab is wrong and that Israel is wrong. Um, They both were doing terrible things. I mean, the king of Moab sacrificed his son. So they're certainly not righteous. You know, even Ukraine, Russia, or Israel, Palestine, like, there's sin on both sides. I'm not saying they're morally equivalent at all. I don't think they are. but. You never know, you just don't know until you get down into the details. And even Abraham Lincoln, if there was ever a righteous war we've ever fought in America, it was certainly the Civil War. And even Abraham Lincoln said, after the Civil War, this is the second inaugural address, he said, we both read the same Bible, we both pray to the same God, and we both invoke his will against the other. You can go to the Lincoln Memorial and read that. And that really was moving to me when I I read that, that he was humble enough to say, yeah, we probably did the right thing, but we can't just say God was on our side all the way. Nobody can say that because we're all sinful. So that's the first point, is we chase our idols and we say God is on our side. But the second point is that God remains gracious to us. It's really hard to believe. I don't think I would have been. But in verse 16, another part of the prophecy that Elisha makes, and he might have felt like he didn't even want to say it, but God was possessing him, but he says, I will make this dry stream bed, which is like, uh, it's got nothing in it, it's a dry stream, so it's a bed, it's like rocks, but there's no, nothing in there, and he says, it's going to be filled with pools of water, and again, they're drunk on their idols, they're fantasizing about the spoils of war, and God is saying, I will bless you. In, in a miraculous way. There'll be no wind, verse 17, no rain, but you will drink, your livestock will drink, and your animals will drink. And again, he really, he underlines the animals because he's doing that partly for them. And the next morning, in verse 20, it says, Behold, water came down from Edom until the country was filled with it. And of course, I go right to Lord of the Rings. Uh, first movie, towards the end, where the ring rays are about to destroy the fellowship, and then Gandalf and Elrond create this flood that comes down from the north, and it just swamps. And uh, it says there are great white horses with shining white riders of water. And so I just imagine this thing just comes out of nowhere. This huge stream comes right down that stream bed, and because there's no wind or rain. It's just this sudden invasion of water from who knows where. And all of a sudden, the animals are drinking, uh, these... These soldiers who are dying of thirst are lapping it up. They're probably jumping in the water and laughing. Uh, he, he quenched their thirst as they're plotting destruction. And they even go through the destruction. He still did this. Not only did he quench their thirst, he wiped out their enemy. He protected them from their enemy. Verse 22, it says, The, the sun shone on the water and it looked red. And the Moabites thought it was blood. And they thought that the three kings were killing each other. They thought that Jehoshaphat and Edom had turned on um, Jehoram. So the Moabites come rushing in, but actually nobody has died, and so they're easily wiped out. So God uh, takes care of their enemies. Uh, He's blessing them as they're pursuing their idols. They are laser-focused on getting their way, you know, come hell or high water, and God blesses them. And I thought, why would God bless them while they're being idolatrous. And then I thought, well, how would he ever bless us? Because we're almost always doing this. So he would never bless us. If he had to wait, if he had to wait till you stop chasing idolatrous plans and dreams, he would never bless you at all. There was one time I, it, this really came home to me, this idea. I was uh, absolutely frantic to leave for Emerald Isle, where we go every year. And I'm pretty bad about leaving on any trip. But when I'm going to the beach, it just amps up a lot. Because I wanna get there so bad. Uh, I became kind of almost violent. Uh, my daughter would just not come down the stairs and I had in my mind very much um, an itinerary for the day that they should have known about. And I really wanted to eat at this restaurant called Chewy's that I really liked, a Mexican restaurant. I had to get there at like one and then that would take us to the house down at Ember Isle by like four, where we could check in and go swimming before dinner at the Riverside cafe. So I was just getting more and more angry. Uh, Cooper was delaying. Uh, He was just being silly, uh, leaving stuff all over the place. And so I got so angry that I got my trunk and just slammed it down right on Cooper's iPad. that just snapped in half. And uh, so there was a long silence uh, as we drove away that lasted most of the trip. But um, we did eat at Chewy's. I did get to swim and we did go to the riverside and God blessed me. Like he said, I am not going to ruin your entire vacation for that. And it's really stunning if you think about it, how does he just keep blessing us? How does uh, he continue to give us all these good things uh, when we're so idolatrous and when we're ignoring him and worshiping our other gods and chasing our dreams? And I love how Elisha says, verse 14, Were it not for David's son, Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you right now. I would not take a second look at you, Jehoram. But because of Jehoshaphat, because of the promise to David, because of the Messiah that's coming from David's line, because of that promise that I made to Israel that there will be a king who will sit on the throne forever, I will look at you and I will bless you. Because not even Jehoshaphat was really that good. He was idolatrous too. What this promise is about, that Elisha is referring to about, if it were not for Jehoshaphat, he's really talking about this Messiah that's coming, that Jehoshaphat is in this line of kings that leads to Jesus, that leads to Jesus. And it's because of Jesus, even back then, it's because of Jesus that God will bless Jehoram, because Jehoram is tied to Jehoshaphat, who's tied to to the line of the Messiah. And just being in that kind of proximity uh, to the Messiah, because you're one with him, God looks upon you and says, you're being idolatrous right now, but you're united to my Messiah, and I will show you favor. I will favor you. You know, the king of uh, Moab, Mesha, he thought that Shimash had won the victory. That's the God of Moab. And there's actually documents from Moab that we've found that say this, referring to this battle that Shemash won the battle because they sacrificed their son to Shemash. In verse 27, he took his oldest son, the heir, to the throne, and King Mesha killed him and offered him as a burnt offering. And he thought that's why the wrath came, because he had offered his son. But we know that that's despicable. Like, God hates, if anything he hates at all in the Old Testament, it's the number one thing is killing children. That's, he says that explicitly. Child sacrifice is horrific to him because it's so common among the nations. And so Mesha thought that he had appeased the wrath of Shimash, But we know that that is an abomination to God. And that God hates the idea of sacrificing an unwilling child to appease his wrath. That is not the gospel. That is a manipulation of a capricious and fickle deity. But sometimes Christians think that that's what the gospel really is. Um, that that God kind of punished his son so he wouldn't have to punish us. And that's not the gospel is something that God loves more than anything. If he hates that more than anything, what he loves more than anything, the father, is to see his son say willingly to the father, I want to go and give myself to them. It's somewhat like what the king of Moab did, but it's not. Because this son comes to the father and says, I want to go. And I want to pay for their idolatry. And I want to receive all their curse so that we can bless them together. So that whenever they look at me, uh, you can give them my favor and pour out my streams of living water upon them, even while they're following their idols. And that's what we celebrate in this meal. Uh, the fact that uh, it was not uh, the son of Mesha being sacrificed to Shimash that turned aside that wrath. What turns aside uh, wrath is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can ever turn aside God's anger. And we celebrate that in this meal right here. So we believe that it was on the night that he was betrayed and on the night of our uh, greatest human violence and idolatry and rejection of the one true and living God, that it was on that night that we were at our very worst that Jesus said, I know exactly what you're going to do to me tomorrow, and I am showing you that I'm doing this willingly. This is not child abuse. This is a willing choice I'm making to lay down my life for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, I am offering you willingly and offering my Father glory by pouring out my blood for you. This is the greatest act of the Son of God to do this thing. And the father said that this was glorifying to him, that he would give him everything, the self-humiliation of the son of God for you. And so obviously, uh, if you come up here, you're not saying like, I'm a great person. It's exactly the opposite. You're coming up here. If you come up here, your, your hands are out and you're saying, I need God's grace. And uh, you know, I am, God is not on the side of my plans by any means, but he shows me favor, unmerited favor all the time, every day. And if you don't come up here, uh, that's, you know, we're glad you're here. We, we want people to come here. It's like Jackson was saying from all different religious backgrounds, uh, strengths of faith. So uh, don't feel any pressure to partake. If you don't believe this story that I've been saying, then it wouldn't make any sense to partake of this meal. But don't make the bar too high, okay? It's not about being a righteous person. It's about needing God's grace. So let me pray for us as we come like beggars to His table. Uh, Jesus, uh, once again, proved to, to us how glorious you are tonight, that there is no one like you. Who in the world would ever do this, um, that um, you would come and die for enemies, for the people that are against you, uh, for the ones who we thought we were right, that we put you on a cross, that you were wrong. That you were horrible and uh, that you were a blasphemer, and and yet even though we thought uh, God was on our side, uh, we were we were destroying God. And you still did that um, to save us. So help us convince us of that as we come to this table. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want the
0: We love these rascals.